Hello there, welcome to the show. I'm Five Things producer, Joey Scarillo. Kenny handed me the keys to the show this week and I saw myself in. Today we wanted to bring you a bonus episode of the show. It is Black History Month and we wanted to bring you a conversation that both honors that and is extremely timely. On this podcast, we normally discuss social media, but today we're gonna discuss the social impact of the COVID vaccine on the black community. Our hope is that what you hear today will be informative and spark action. Please help us share this message with someone you think will benefit from the conversation. I am not an expert on the COVID vaccine, nor am I a member of the black community. I am simply a familiar voice to start us off and close us out. I'll leave the content to the experts. Today, I am thrilled to welcome our three expert guests. Two of them are my colleagues from Gray. First from Gray is Yolanda Hainsworth. She is the EVP of Health and Wellness, leads Gray's inclusion and diversity group, Integrated. She's a thought leader and an all-around badass. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Next is Cassandra Sinclair, president of North America Pharma at Gray and truly a genius when it comes to health and wellness's effect on basically every other industry. Hey there. So excited to be here. And our featured guest is Jax Porter, a global marketing director, strategist, and social impact leader in the healthcare space for over a decade. She is a summa cum laude graduate of Howard University and earned an MBA from DePaul. You can find her at Jax the Stallion on Peloton. We are honored to have her here today. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Before I hand it off to this esteemed panel, want to just let you all know that the opinions and views expressed on this podcast are theirs and not the views of their employers. The five things we are discussing today that relate to the COVID vaccine in the Black community are COVID fatigue, mistrust and distrust, the issue of access, overcoming fear, and the distribution plan. Okay, like I said, I'm going to step back, pass the mic, and I'll see you on the other end of this podcast. So without delay, here's Yolanda, Cassandra, and Jax. Thanks so much, Joey, and lovely to be with you, Jax and Yolanda. You know, I don't know about you, but there's nothing more top of mind than the global pandemic that's currently, you know, disrupting every aspect of our life. I'm sure you'd agree, um, which is probably a really good segue into talking about COVID fatigue. And clearly, COVID fatigue is being experienced differently between Black Americans and white Americans. Yolanda, what are some of your observations? I mean, I think it's widely known that Black Americans are disproportionately impacted by COVID. We've been seeing this in the news. I think it was elevated with the Black Lives Matter start last year. Um, and, and it's such a such uh, disproportionate rates. I mean, three times, about three times more likely for people in the black community to be unable to pay for basic necessities, about two and a half times more likely um, to have most of their money used up in terms of their savings, which of course is then leading them to to take out money and loans, which makes the situation a bit worse. And that's happening at about two times the rates. But I think some part of that that needs to be understood is COVID has been a full roller coaster of emotions for many, but particularly in the Black community, um, it's felt felt different differently. These disproportionate rates in terms of how the Black community is contracting the virus and the severity of the illness leaves a lot more hope to be desired. Uh, the community 
the way it is feeling is that they're burying their family members on probably like a weekly basis. Um, there's a loss of jobs, as we talked about, there's crowding in homes. And what's happening is it leaves no escape to cope. So mental stability is also being broken for many people. And we're seeing a lot more things happen out in the environment in terms of like random, random attacks. Um, and it doesn't seem to be any end to any of this soon, um, the way it's felt with this community. I don't know if you would agree, Jax. Yeah, I, I echo everything that you shared up until this point. And I think the uh, statistics that, that you ran down are quite sad and it should make every American a little bit uncomfortable, right? Um, but the thing that those numbers are not <laughs> is surprising, right? African-Americans make up a higher proportion of frontline jobs. And so when the pandemic hit, some of those people weren't able to work from home like you or I um, may have had the luxury to do. A lot of businesses went under um, or had to cut staff. And so that left a lot of people unemployed, even when things did reopen. And I think bigger than that, the real root cause is driving everything that you mentioned is the wealth gap. The reality is in this country, the average Black family um, has a 10th of the wealth of the average white family. And so that means that there was no reserve to tap into in case of an emergency. Many Black Americans are living pay to paycheck, uh, paycheck to paycheck, you know. So in a disaster, something unexpected like this um, would naturally create a lot of financial stress. And to your point, emotional distress, social um, distress. And so... Um, it's all true, but but certainly not a surprise to people who've been paying attention to the trends and how things are are set up in our society. Yeah, I would definitely definitely agree, and I think that these are the particular times where the community comes together and they really try to lean on their faith. Um, and I think that that's even hard because to your point, when you don't have a reserve and you see your family so in need you start cutting back on on healthcare specific stuff it's like i can't worry about about my life i have to take care of my family so if i can't buy my drugs i can't buy my drugs um to keep me healthy i have to do what i have to do to take care of my family i think the thing that makes it even worse is that the education around covid has been suboptimal and this community in particular because of the systemic racism issues in the, the country is already behind the curve in terms of education and the, the suboptimalness of the, the COVID ed education has not been helping matters at all. People don't even really have a full grasp of the virus and its impact and, and overall how things are really going to affect them. So without that lack of clarity, it's hard to even really still have hope for the future. Um, to be there. And then you start to hear about new vaccines coming onto the market. And it's like, great. And right on his heels, you hear that there's another strain. <laughs> so it's like, what else, you know, can be done to, to put me back in that position of feeling hopeless? And I, I think there's an underappreciation for the, uh, the subconscious psychological 
stress we're all under when you're constantly worried about, you know, if I go to the store, am I going to come into contact with the virus? If I, You know what I mean? I think there's just this undercurrent of fear that is with us 24-7 that has an effect on both physical and mental health. Yeah. And that's probably a, a perfect segue. You know, you both talked about the psychosocial uh, impact and the socioeconomic impact and the lack of, of reflective and emotive education that really is, is necessary to change behaviors. So when we look at mistrust and distrust in the medical community uh, by the Black community, you know, it's not just specific to the pandemic, but certainly amplified by that. Jax, do you, do you want to expand a little further? Um, certainly. I think the exasperated mistrust that we see amongst the African-American uh, community is a culmination of the historical mistreatment and experimentation that um, the Black community has experienced in this country. Uh, Tuskegee is a, a well-known and often referenced example of this. The Henrietta Lacks story is um, something that I, I think became more uh, mainstream, if you will, and that is another well-known um, example of that, but certainly um, there are several others, right? And then you have the the disparities in access to, to care, quality of care, and uh, disparities in health outcomes that cannot be disputed. These are all facts, right? Um, and they're there and people know about them. But then when you add those things together and then you layer on top of it the fact that Black people have their own real, actual, one-on-one -on -one experiences and encounters with the healthcare system that are often negative. And it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status you know, is what your education is, how much money you you make. Oftentimes, the people that you're engaging in uh, with in a healthcare situation don't know any of that, and we know that impl implicit bias exists. And so, when you add all of those things together, once again, you have a a recipe for mistrust. And I don't think. I don't think the answers or the way that we solve for it are going to be simple or something that we will, you know, have completely overcome, even when we are on the other side of the pandemic. Yeah, I feel that um, when you talk about underappreciation, this is yet another area where people know uh, the reasons for the the mistrust and distrust and again, citing Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee syphilis experience experiment as some of the, the major ones, but there are things that can be definitely highlighted today that is still happening to the Black community, community in terms of medical experimentation. Um, and it is very real and it is in different forms, but that is still driving the mistrust within the system, the healthcare system, and with medical research. And those things have to be addressed we know that it's going to take time, but people need to really think through strategies of how you break this barrier because until it's broken, nothing else will matter in terms of a solution for the community. You will make some inroads to very small levels, but it's such a big and significant issue. This is one of the key things that is holding us back today. And Jax, you brought up 
the financial aspect of this and the wealth gap. And the reason why the mistrust is there because we've seen firsthand how money rules and how it corrupts things. So even when there are initiatives that seem to be set up in such uh, such appropriate and correct ways, we know that money can turn that around and buy a person and and change things very quickly. So the only true answer is for people to get a lot more educated, um, but they also have to trust who's educating them. <laughs> And when you start to look around, we know that we don't see ourselves uh, within the healthcare um, space as much as you see uh, whites within the space. And that is definitely a problem when you're looking to somebody to say, who's the credible source that knows me, knows my experience, and that I would actually trust. So credible sources is uh, uh, certainly a hot topic broadly when it comes to COVID and the vaccine uh, uh, conundrum. You know, misconceptions abound from what efficacy means. I, I joked around the other day saying my teenager is now an epidemiologist because she's talking to her friends about, you know, 95% efficacy and what what's good for one uh, uh, is not necessarily good for another. But that's a completely different conversation around access issues for the Black community. Yolanda, do you want to speak some more about that? I mean, the first thing that I would say is that we always need to keep top of mind that we have to separate out access and affordability. Um, and I think many times we tend to focus just on access. So I always like to say, if you build something, that does not mean that everybody will come. I hate to to break that. But, you know, thinking about what this population of Black community has been through, and again, the systemic um, racism that's actually driving the inequities you think about access, you kind of have to, you know, make sure people have transportation to get to wherever they need to get to. Do they have the funds to pay for um, what they need to get to? Some things that I don't even think are considered um, are things like I just I just saw a, a, a news alert saying that they're finally getting things on a, a federal level. Uh, and it's still not consistent in terms of how they're going to be distributing these vaccines, and particularly close to me. So in Lower Westchester, they open up these mass um, sites for vaccination. The places where I've seen one being held is a National Guard facility. Understanding Black Americans being targets, I don't know how many of them will feel very welcomed in a National Guard facility. So even things like that, Empathy is not there. They're just like, big space, we can get a lot of people in here. And they're not considering the things that are, are motivators or the true things you need to get people in and to establish that comfort where people will say, yeah, I know I truly need this. And this is an environment that uh, I would really want to go to, or this is the type of person that I trust to give me this vaccine and to educate me in a way that makes me feel comfortable. Jax, do you want to build on that? Yeah, I I think the thing that we have to get honest about is the fact that the virus does not discriminate. It doesn't know our race. It doesn't know where we live. It doesn't know how much money we make. The reason that we see differences in the infection rate, hospitalization, and mortality in minority communities comes down to access to treatment. And, and that is really driven by structural and systemic racism. 
we just have to sit with that and explore that, I think. African-Americans have a higher likelihood of contracting the virus and being hospitalized. And and we know that the things that are really driving that are the fact that African-Americans also tend to live in closer quarters or more, more densely populated areas. They're less likely to be working jobs where they have the ability to work from home. They're less likely to have private transportation. They're more likely to uh, be working in high contact, essential roles. We also know that African-Americans are traditionally sicker. You know, there are a lot of comorbidities in the community, higher rates of diabetes, uh, obesity and things like that. And the same factors that are driving those outcomes are disparities and inequity in things like education, income, housing, transportation, and the list goes on. So if we're really serious about addressing the issues and the disparities that we're seeing with COVID, we have to get serious about um, getting beyond Band-Aids, right, and addressing symptoms, (laughs) and really get down to addressing root causes. Yeah. And I'll have to say, Cassandra, like, it's real hard because I, I see many efforts where there's a lot of things of like, oh, these events from the past are so far away and we can kind of start from today. Community doesn't look at, the, look at it that way. So, for example, the diversity seen in these trials uh, for these drugs A lot of people are boasting. We've been able to get uh, the population increased and we now have 30% inclusive uh, if you total up the Black population with Latinx population. It's still not reflected of of the actual total population within America. And it's interesting that the objective is to increase it, but not to marry it to what the reflection of the total country's population is. Um, and then additionally, it's like the increase is nothing to us. That's your baseline now. You, you know, it's like this is your start now. You kind of have to work from there. But everybody's just like, oh, we raised it and we've seen this. And there's so many different levels to it because the way that the things are broken down in terms of who you're seeing being enrolled, there's still a lot of questions that the black community has because they are saying to themselves, does that trial population actually truly reflect me? So the me who may have some mixed background um, or the me who may have diabetes, uh, hypertension, and something else that I'm dealing with. So it's like, did it take that into consideration as well? Um, So there are still a ton of questions out there and and a ton of work that we have to do. And it's leading many to be very hesitant in terms of being the first uh, of, of or within the first set that's going to get vaccinated. So it is heavily noted within the population, the, the Black community, that they will wait. And they will probably wait <laughs> a year or so. I'm not even going to count vaccines. But they are looking for the long-term data to see how it really nets out um, to, to give them some comfort to really buy into it. And then there's yeah, too, of like, if there's a new strain, what purpose is this serving if I'm getting this vaccine? You're absolutely right. And when you mentioned the long-term data, you know, we're seeing about one-third of the Black adults in the U.S. not planning on getting vaccinated, citing everything from, you know, the newness of the vaccines to fear around safety, 
uh, as top deterrents, including deterrence around you know, fears of injection um, and, and the COVID vaccine itself. You know, fear and misconceptions are really elevated by the unknown. Jax, I'd love your point of view on, on overcoming fear of injection, particularly uh, with the rampant nature of COVID. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I personally, I don't see the fear of injection as a huge barrier. And believe me, I know how much Black people don't like shots, right? Um, but I, I honestly don't. Even knowing that, I think that people recognize the, the seriousness of the, the virus. Um, and I think that they could get over that fear if there was trust in the data, the science and all of that. And, and and the other thing I would say is that I think the mistrust extends beyond the medical community. Uh, I think there's a lot of dis distrust of government right now. There's a lot of distrust of media right now. And, and that's been compounded um, and exasperated over the last five to 10 years. And so I, I think that's the biggest barrier we've got to overcome. And once again, I think COVID will have come and gone and we're going to still have that that issue because it's so big and it's so deep and psychological. And the, the history just runs so long. And, you know, like any attitude or belief um, that you want to change, there's no one intervention. I think it's going to be something that we'll be um, grappling with and hopefully making progress on um, over time. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'll add that the, the, the mistrust, distrust is definitely going to continue to be a big hesitation. I mean, there was a study that was conducted in 2018 that indicated that Black Americans were being overrepresented in trials that did not, and I will repeat, did not require informed consent. And these type of scenarios are those aimed at life-threatening emergency conditions. So it leads me to think in two different areas, which it will lead everybody else to do the same, which is, one, it shows you how much this population is not going to to put themselves into a trial. But then secondly, why are they things being conducted in terms of experiments or trials without my consent? So if I'm dying, I want you to focus on saving me. Why in the world is it then leading to some other objective? And this is why the mistrust is still there. It's a very big problem. And I guess access to almost circling back, even if we can help communities overcome, say, fear or distrust, misinformation, the actual distribution, uh, when, we, when we think about the distribution of the COVID vaccine, is a barrier. Yolanda, do you want to share your point of view on that? Yeah, and I brought up a little bit of it uh, a bit earlier with this, this recent alert that I got about the, the mass vaccination sites. I think people are thinking about it and understanding that Proximity is a, an important thing for access. Um, the local pharmacies are heavily used within these communities in terms of uh, gaining care, to be completely honest. So many people visit the pharmacist a lot more than they go to their doctor. So when you have those sites involved um, for vaccinations is key. And this new strategy um, which they're using these max, these mass vaccination sites are are within the populations that they've seen, or within the communities. I'm sorry, 
that they've seen that have been heavily um, influenced. So I think I think those things are are good and that they're happening. I do think that there's some consistency uh, needed for it. And that has to happen at like a federal level throughout the country, because what we're seeing happening is that there are individual organizations, there are celebrities, because let's get back to wealth gap, but there are celebrities who have started to come into money and are trying to use it for good. And they have their own separate initiatives where they're trying to educate the population and motivate the population to get vaccinated, but it's all separated and nothing is uniform and it cannot be unless it's at that, I feel, at that higher level to create some consistency. But again, when they start thinking about these strategies, they have to go back to the beginning and what is driving all of this and truly move forward with empathy. They have to start thinking about this stuff. So again, Black people are targeted on a daily basis. We have problems with police. There are many other problems with authority. Driving them to sites that are heavily guarded may not be a good thing. I don't know, but (laughs) that's just something in my head. Type of things just kind of need to be thought about because we're already saying that if you, you know, open it up, that doesn't mean that I'm going to come. So that's not helping to welcome um, anyone, even if it was close um, in proximity. I, I couldn't agree more, Yolanda. I think the issues we're seeing with the vaccine distribution strategy have everything to do with the fact that we didn't have federal leadership and oversight. Um, there should have been a coordinated national effort Um that just can't be uh, underscored enough. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there has to be an understanding of the African-American journey and experience and how they interact with, with healthcare, what they think and believe, what their tension points and fears are, so that leaders can build strategies that actually serve the people. It can't be a one-size-fit-all. We see how that works. We see how that plays out. We have the numbers. Yeah. And we keep saying to bring in the Black organizations that are credible. So in this particular latest uh, scenario with the the announcement around the the mass vaccination sites, you had FEMA and CDC partnering. Why wouldn't they pull in another group? Like the the, uh, the NMA or Black Doctors uh, group, I mean the NAM, I'm sorry, a black doctors. I'm not sure why, but it would be heavily beneficial understanding that when they're thinking about socially vulnerable com- communities and the ones mostly impacted, it is heavily black communities. You need to start pulling them into some of these um, decisions. Thank you, both Jax and Yolanda. Um, you know, our time together has been not only enlightening, but clearly there there's uh, a lot of work to be done. Uh, not only for the pandemic and COVID, but for the broader, uh, to break down barriers and misinformation. And I couldn't appreciate your time and your honesty. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, Yeah, this was an awesome conversation. There was a lot here that I certainly wasn't aware of, um, especially what you were saying around consent and and some of that uh, topic. I was very blind to, but, you know, there's an idea that you all mentioned that comes up on this show time and time again, 
And that's just around empathy. And so we, you know, we really just can't stress enough, you know, this idea of opening up our horizons and and putting ourselves in other shoes. So again, I just want to say thank you to Yolanda. Thank you to Jax. Thank you to Cassandra. This was awesome. Um, and so that wraps it up for us today. Um, if you have any questions or comments on the five things, be sure to reach out to us at our email. That's podcasts at gray.com. And uh, I'm going to steal Kenny's line here, and I think it applies to all of us as well. Stay safe, stay smart, and stay social. Thanks. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Petty and Grace McDougall, produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt, mixed at Gramercy Park Studios. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.